Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. This is Ben Jackson. As we speak, Alyssa's en route to Orlando for Megacon Orlando, so you'll be stuck with me today. For most of us, it's hard to imagine having a medically fragile child. It's even harder to put ourselves in the place of a parent, of someone with facial differences or other visible signs of medical concerns. Our guest today is Natalie Weaver. Her late daughter Sophia was born with Rett syndrome and facial differences, and now she runs Sophia's voice in her daughter's memory. Natalie Weaver is here with us today to stand up for her daughter and every other American who is facing the threat of having their health care ripped away from them. I can't wait to be friends with you. Oh, she's too much older. I would love to hold hands. The story we first brought you last February, a local mom grabbing national headlines fighting after a stranger stole a picture of her daughter and used it to promote abortion. I couldn't believe the amount of hate and ignorance that was out there. Children like Sophia are children. To be honest, many people don't even view her as a human. And I'm really just fighting for the most basic human right. Hi, my name is Natalie Weaver, and I am the founder of Sophia's Voice, an organization I started for my daughter to fight for her health care and to help others with disabilities with any type of medical needs and fight against online hate and so much more. I continue the organization in my daughter's memory since she has passed away. Sorry, not sorry. Natalie, so glad to have you on Sorry, Not Sorry. Tell our listeners a little bit about you and who you are. So I began my journey at 34 weeks pregnant when I found out that my daughter might not survive birth. And if she did survive birth, she would be born with differences to her face, hands, and feet and be profoundly disabled. And that's really where my journey of activism began. At first, I felt stuck and like I had no choice but to face this new life that I knew nothing about. And the moment I held her, she changed my life forever and continued to change my life for the 10 and a half years that she was here. And I began to advocate for her privately. We chose to live a private life because when I took her out into society because of her differences, we were treated cruelly. And I made the choice because I didn't know how long she would be on this earth with us to live privately so that she wouldn't experience that hate at the age where she could understand. And people would laugh and scream and just whisper and treat us incredibly unkind. And I lost the privilege of privacy when my state decided that they were going to decrease life-saving health care services for my daughter and thousands of disabled children in North Carolina. And so I decided to publicly fight to protect my daughter's health care and the health care of thousands. And luckily, we stopped our state from decreasing services. And the national fight for health care began when Trump was elected. I felt equipped to handle that fight. And I was flown to D.C. to give my very first speech of my life at a press conference in front of five U.S. senators. And I realized that I was capable of doing so much more 
that's when I began to receive online hate. And people were just incredibly cruel, even more cruel than taking her out into society because they are hiding behind a keyboard. And uh, I continued my fight with the continual votes to make my daughter's life-saving health care harder to receive. And luckily, the millions of people who joined the fight, Alyssa included, helped stop that from happening. And I'm incredibly grateful to Alyssa. She was actually the first celebrity to reach out to me personally when I was fighting and sharing our story and helped share our story, helped me build an online community of people that were willing to fight for my daughter who loved her and fell in love with her. And as much hate as we received, an incredible amount of love and people that have been changed because of Sophia's light. As I fought, I received tons of hate, violent threats, death threats, cruelty, people using her image to promote eugenics. And our story went viral throughout the entire world. That's when the hate became even more intense. And that's when I fought Twitter to include disability in their reporting tool, to even recognize the hate that people with disabilities and facial differences receive. And they made that change. I worked with Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook to do the same because I believe that all people, no matter their disabilities or how they look, deserve to show up and exist in all spaces that everyone does without receiving hate speech. Sadly, my daughter died in 2019. I had to take a break and I tried to return to who I was multiple times and she was exhausting. And I have found a good balance now, and I continue the work to raise awareness and to keep my daughter's impact and story alive. That's what I continue to do. That's such important work, and there's a lot to sort of unpack there. I want to step back a little bit to before Sophia was born. Who were you before Sophia was born? That's a great question, and I think you're the first one to ask that. I was an easygoing person, kind, hidden. I did not want to be seen, and I was comfortable. I often say I had a privilege that I didn't realize until I lost the privilege of blending in with society, and that's where I was comfortable. And she taught me compassion, and I had it before, but not like I did, and she opened me up to the world of the disability community that I love, and she really changed me. I asked that. You know, and in case people don't know this about me, I also have a daughter who has serious medical issues and has some visible evidence of those health conditions that has caused similar issues in many ways to um, what you've experienced. And I think that we always talk about becoming a parent as the moment that changes your life. And I'm sure that is nearly universally true. But becoming a parent in the way that we became parents is something that there is no preparation for. There's no way to know about it. And you're suddenly in a place that fundamentally changes everything about your life. And parenting changes everything about your life, but not in the same way. He was put into special care after about two two or three hours after a very, very quick birth early. Um, We'll test before we're normal, quote unquote. Um, And he was sick. We were in hospital for a month, poked, prodded, intervention, told many different things, uh, lots of maybes, not really many facts. Yeah, it was very challenging to deal with the whole medical invasion. I think that we find out who we are 
defined in the way of these challenges that and this is primarily something that younger people face primarily, right? I was 26 when my daughter was born. I know that you were reasonably young as well when Sophia was born and you're not prepped for it. And so I think that change is really interesting. You talked about finding this out at 34 weeks. And I remember so clearly the moment that we found out that Emma was going to have the tumor that she had when she was born and how that shifted. And I wonder if you remember that moment exactly that you found out that Sophia was going to have some challenges and what that moment was like for you. I mean, it's ingrained in me. It is Natalie before and Natalie after. That moment is cemented in my mind. And I remember I wanted to see my baby in one last ultrasound before she was born. And I got that. And I remember the technician going out of the room quickly, the doctor coming in and saying, we found an artifact in front of her face. We don't know what this is. You need to go to the specialist immediately. My husband picked me up. We drove to the specialist. They were waiting for us, took us back. And we spent over an hour in the ultrasound room two different doctors examining and sighing and not understanding what they were looking at because they had never seen a baby like this before. And the moment they decided to tell us that your child might not survive birth, and if she does, she will have significant differences to her face, hands, and feet and be disabled. And I just remember the room spinning and it felt like the floor had fallen out. I remember the drive home and being completely silent and in shock. And when you have no choice, you are just wrapped with so many questions and so much pain because it was just an unbelievable experience. And everything we had planned for, we had our nursery decorated, we had our clothes put away, everything we planned for had changed. And I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if I was going to lose my child. And I watched my parents lose a child. So I knew that whatever was going to happen, it was going to change me. And I had never considered disability in my life. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, you know, it's sort of the same. You have these ultrasound moments. It almost becomes the cliche, you know, with us. There happened to be 
the day that we found out Emma was going to be sick, this was in 2001, when this technology was really new, a vendor trying to sell a 3D ultrasound to the hospital at a time when that didn't exist. And so I'm sure we made this guy's career, right, of selling because they happened to be able to image this particular incredibly rare tumor that way. But it was the same experience where we're in the ultrasound room and the technician drops the probe and walks out of the room. And as that probe is falling and that door opens, in that second, your whole life is completely different. And I ask about it because I think that the ignorance of that experience, most people are really lucky that they'll never have that experience. And that's fantastic. I don't want people to have that experience. But I also think that ignorance of what it's like leads to some of the hate that we experience. And so talking about it hopefully allows people to have a little more empathy to parents and to those children. So you have that moment, how did you cope? Sophia's going to be born, but it's not right then. You have the waiting period between that moment and birth. And that birth, at least for me, it felt like a time bomb. It felt like a deadline that was just the something explosive was going to happen. How did you manage those few weeks and then after Sophia was born and learning to become a parent? both a parent and a parent of Sophia in those moments after? It was difficult, and I had four weeks to prepare. And those were the heaviest four weeks. And old Natalie, as we mentioned, would run from conflict, would avoid it. And I had no choice but to face it. And I didn't want to. I really didn't want to. And so I had to dig deep to find some hope that maybe the doctors were wrong, that everything was going to be okay, or that I was strong enough to handle whatever was to come. And so I woke up every morning at 5 a.m. and I was very lucky. My parents lived down the street from me and I would go and have a cup of coffee with them. That was my act of rebellion because I had done everything organic, no caffeine. Like I went above and extreme. And so I was like, it didn't matter. So I'm having a cup of coffee. And I relaxed. And I also had to get a new pediatrician and go to a well-equipped hospital. So I had things that I had to plan for. We toured the NICU and just tried to prepare ourselves the best that we could. And it was very important to keep myself calm, to protect Sophia. Even then, while in my belly, I knew that my stress would stress her out. And I just tried to get through it day by day. I did isolate and I told my friends, I don't want to talk to anyone. I didn't handle everything in the right way. And I still had parts of me that wanted to hide and not allow anyone in or to disappoint me. But we made it through and I have an amazing supportive husband that was just there to support me and give me hope when I was losing it and vice versa. You mentioned the right way. And that's such a hard thing because people, have expectations on you as you're going through this in a way that part of us feels obligated to address, right? We care about the people in our life. We want to keep them updated. On the other hand, we're trying to learn a whole new language, even just understanding that NICU means something. You're learning about the machinery, the intensely and maybe intentionally opaque language of medicine. Everything's in Latin. And you're trying to figure this out. You're trying to figure out how to do things. And what many people mean as support starts to feel like imposition even though it's really well-intentioned. And people will say the right way is to lean on your support system, but sometimes you are actually taking care of everybody else in that situation. When I wake up, um, I get Brandon out. 
I give him his medications, I catheterize him, I change his diaper and sometimes his clothes, and then I put him back on his feeding pump for a little while. And that goes every three hours pretty much around the clock. There's a wake up sometime between five and six. Nine times out of 10, his Aussie bag has come off in the middle of the night. He likes to toss and turn and roll around. Since having Lauren, I think my other, my other two kids, I've had to take the back burner a lot. Riley, Riley's 15. He should not have to be dependent on to take care of his brother. I totally get it, and I hope that people will stop thinking of that there being a right way in these situations, because there isn't. There's no guidebook. There's no map. You have to figure it out. You mentioned earlier that after Sophia was born, people reacted to her in a way that was really hurtful. And I don't mean we can understand that and that it's permissible, but we can picture it. We can imagine that somebody has differences and people have some visceral reactions to that. But I'm curious how people treated you and Mark after Sophia was born. Were there changes in the way they treated you as parents or was it primarily towards Sophia? People we knew or just strangers? Yeah, like just people you knew, people you encountered, basically just people in your life. I just found a lot of times people started saying, why didn't you do this? Or what have you done this? Or even did you try yoga or whatever, you know, just that kind of stuff. People were always judging us, not as even our actions, but that something in me or my ex-wife created the problems in our children and that we were there for problematic. I don't know if you experienced that at all. I had a great support system because it was very small. I often, when times were stressful, would cut out friendships because I couldn't handle much more. And I had a very supportive family and they were all great. And I made it very clear that I'm here at the medical appointments, your opinions and ideas, those don't matter because Mark and I are the ones making these decisions and a part of this medical world that no one knows about but us in these doctor's appointments. But they didn't treat us differently. I have a really wonderful family and they would fight over holding Sophia. The only thing is lots of questions from people and that would get tiring. I didn't want to just sit there and constantly answer questions about Sophia and her medical stuff and what I think is going to happen and those types of things. We were treated differently from some friends who can't handle disability, felt uncomfortable by it, people who disappear during difficult times, all the stories of society that we have all heard before and some of us have experienced. Just people felt uncomfortable because of her disabilities, because of her facial differences. And stranger-wise, it was completely different. I had to build up strength and courage to just go to the grocery store with my daughter. Time and time again, I would be brought back down by the pain that I can't even take my daughter to the park without stares, comments, hate, and discomfort. And so that was more apparent than anyone else that I allowed in our safe world because I was very selective. Yeah, it's one of those experiences. I can understand children asking questions. Children are naturally curious. And generally, especially younger children, they're not asking questions out of cruelty, but of actual curiosity. And that makes sense. But adults, the behavior of adults towards these children, I remember as Emma was just old enough to start really understanding people's reactions to her. and. A cashier at Walmart 
looked at her and said, what is wrong with her? And I'm just like, how do you do this? Or like going to Disney or going to a place where you might stand in line. And the number of people that I had to stand between Emma and these people for the staring, for the kind of glares, for the talks back and forth. And um, kids see this. They see it and it's really challenging. And I think you've probably heard, I know I've heard, people are just curious. They just want to see and they want to understand. And that's not that experience at all. That's not what they are. It's not curious. And our children become their entertainment. And that's really hard. Did you ever feel that Sophia was reduced in people's eyes to her medical condition, that she wasn't allowed to be the child that she was outside of her facial differences, her Rett syndrome, that she existed in person? Did you ever feel that was hard to maintain? Yeah. I mean, people would only see her differences because they were so apparent and so obvious. That's all she was. And I have said this before, I would take her out and I would be so proud of her after all the medical stuff she had been through, the surgeries, and I saw strength and I understood what true beauty meant. And they would only see her medical conditions and her facial differences. And that's all she was to them was this strange creature. People called her all kinds of horrible names. And that happens all the time and it continues to happen. And I should say that we both had a similar experience with Alyssa. She reached out to me when uh, Emma was in a long-term hospitalization. And that might be a thing people don't know about her is that she does a lot of that. But we became friends through Alyssa in that way. And that I got to see a lot of Sophia. And one of the things that I remember the most was there was a video that I saw that you took, I think, of Mark playing with her. And she's cracking up. And she's just laughing so hard. And the joy that came out of Sophia in her life when this child who had challenges, had a hard time, had so much love in her heart and so much joy in her heart. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about who she was, just who was Sophia outside of her medical conditions. Yes. And one of the reasons I share my memories and her life is so that people can have the opportunity to look beyond the differences and see the human being. And she was an amazing human being. We made the decision that it was time to change the way we were doing things. And um, so that's when we made the decision to step away from medical care, to transition her off of some of the medications and start focusing on living life to the fullest for her. This transition for us is really about um, embracing the, the quality of life and not the quantity of, of days we have left. And so that's where we're trying to say, let's get some adventures under our belt. Let's show her some things that she's never seen before. Things most families take for granted. It was so amazing. Um, I, I get emotional just thinking about it. I was pushing her in her wheelchair. Music, lights, all. She loves music and she just was so happy the entire time. And when you take that time, she is a life-changing person, but she was so amazing. And all the way up until two years old, she was developing typically, and then Rett syndrome hit and took those skills away. But she was still there. Her light was still there. That girl loved to laugh. And we would go through these traumatic surgeries. And the next day, she would be giggling. And I'm like, I'm not even recovered yet. And here she is with stitches, and she is laughing. She was silly and mischievous, and her favorite color was green. And one of her favorite things to do was 
when we weren't looking because she couldn't coordinate her movements all the time, but occasionally she could. She would knock our glass over and spill our drink and would laugh. And she couldn't speak words all the time, but when she could get words out, she would say, hell yeah, when she was excited. I know she got that from me. And words, cuss words, whatever she wanted to say, she could say because we celebrated every sound she made. She was a loving little girl. She loved to cuddle and be around her family and laugh. She loved music and she was just such a light. And through hard times, what helped me get through was being able to hold her. And that's been the hardest part of her not being here is those difficult times continue because I continue the work, but I can't hold her. I try to remind myself that she is still here and her spirit is still alive with us. And you have a tattoo that kind of demonstrates that, right? Yes, I have her heartbeat. A nurse printed it out after her 20th surgery, and I always knew I'm going to have her heartbeat tattooed on my arm, and I did. And then later when I decided to create Sophia's voice, that's the logo is her heartbeat. We have it on shirts and people have it throughout the world, and they are carrying her heartbeat with them. And she lives on through all of the people she impacted. She really did including me. So you mentioned earlier that you sort of had to confront a public life when North Carolina was trying to cut medical benefits for people with really serious medical conditions, particularly for children. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? This is something that North Carolina did, but certainly continues to happen across the country. Sure. So Sophia was a part of a program through Medicaid. She had private insurance But when you have a child with extreme medical needs and needs medical equipment, you would be shocked at what private insurance does not cover. And we had top of the line private insurance. I'm talking wheelchairs, bath chairs, things that help them live. And it covered her AFOs for her foot braces once a year. And that was it. And so she needed so much more oxygen machines, a hospital type bed at home. And what this program does. It's called Home and Community-Based Services, and it covers the costs that her private insurance didn't and allowed us to have a hospital-type setup at home that she wouldn't have to be institutionalized so that our family wouldn't go into medical bankruptcy. And it's really important because it would actually cost the state more money if children were having to be institutionalized than to just help and provide that secondary insurance to families so that they could set it up at home and their child can live with them. And so it's a really important program. And one of the most important parts is having nursing in the home. And what North Carolina was deciding to do, and they had actually decided to do it, is decrease the nursing care that they were going to allow families to have. Take away what we had become accustomed to that kept my daughter alive. She had to be watched all the time. And I just remember getting the news and thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to change our lives. Whether Mark and I sleep or not, Mark can work, those types of things. And whether Sophia can be watched and make sure that she's safe. And so I remember reaching out to some other moms and they needed some public attention. Can somebody go to the news? And I never wanted to be a speaker. I never wanted to know how to give interviews be on TV or do any of the things that I am doing now, but I was willing to do anything for my daughter. And I remember typing on the page, if no one else will do it, I will. And I 
remember the news. They were coming to the house and, and I was sweating and I was thinking of how can I cancel? I've got to cancel this, like hyperventilating. This is not something I want to do. I know what's going to come if I do share our story, but I do know how important our story is. And so I did it and I realized, wow, I actually did a good job and I can make an impact. And we continue to fight. And within six weeks, we stopped them from making those changes and became a part of a committee to continue to protect. And the two other moms are still doing it to this day. And it seems like it should be something that's so simple because you're right. It is both forget the moral imperative that we have in these situations where people like Sophia and their families, like my daughter, Emma, were victims of cruel fate. It's not a choice. And even if it was a choice that ended up with your child like this, it's not the child's fault. And the care that is required is monumental, but it's a smart economic decision for the States to do this. You know, if you're not covering nursing, the parents can't work. And if the parents can't work, you're then covering unemployment and other benefits, theoretically, right? You have other costs that social supports come into play. It boggles my mind that people are trying to take this away. If they want to take things away, there's a checklist I would be happy to go down. It's not medical care from children. And yet it seems like this is such an easy target or a continual target for them. And it's just it's so hard to imagine because your lives are already hard when you're taking care of one of these children. The amount of stress that exists in your life. I remember Emma also had nursing growing up and every year we would have to go and fight for nursing hours and we'd watch our nursing hours contract, which would change like, okay, well now I can't work these jobs. I now have to go and work some other job. Guess what? That changes my insurance. That means the state's going to have to pay more. And it continually did this. At the same time, we would see things like the medical supply company billing the insurance twelve dollars or $1,300 for a case of formula that she needed as her nutrition that we could have bought at retail for $400, right? So you have these two competing things, neither of which are being addressed by the state's actions, and instead it's just left on parents and their children to try and figure out. And I just think it's so immoral. People don't realize how expensive it is. He loves school. Fletcher loves policemen. And he also loves to make bracelets and um, pass them out as an act of kindness. Fletcher Burns is the center of his mom Denise's world and will be for the rest of his life. He's not going to go to college. He's not going to get married. So he's, he'll be with us, right? Born with multiple health issues, the 17-year-old requires constant care, even overnight. Before the pandemic, Denise says Sooner Care helped cover the assistance of a private duty nurse 16 hours a day, five days a week. During the public health emergency, they and other families were able to get the help every single day. But now, hours are being cut. It was a phone call, some random Tuesday, that we're going to reduce your hours. I couldn't believe it. I would often say that there are families that I know that are making six and seven figures that this would drain them and medically bankrupt them. And then all of the following costs that come from that. And I remember the first hate comment I got when I went on the news at the state level, you should have left her at the hospital to die. She's a drain on society. It's costing us. And I'm like, you have no knowledge of what the program's about, what leaving her would have cost the state. 
rather than her have the care that she needs, loving, beautiful care at home. And while it was a hospital setup, it was a queen princess hospital setup in her pink and green room. What a beautiful thing. And how anyone could say something negative against that. And also the last four years of my daughter's life, she was slowly dying and I was having to fight our government for the care that she deserves to have. And that is a pain that I will never get over, a heartbreak that I will never get over. And I had a lot of anger and I've worked on that anger and it's, I've gotten peace with that, but it's a pain that I never imagined I would know. You feel betrayed and it was really difficult to work through. And I'm grateful to the activist that Alyssa introduced me to you being included because you accepted my pain, my anger, my rage. And you supported my fight. And I can't say that for everyone in my world who knew me before I had to become this fearless activist. Yeah. You know, I think it was a little easy for me, A, because you're who you are and you're a piece of magic in the world. But I will also say your pain was my pain and your anger was my anger. And that's something that probably nobody talks about, certainly not on a policy level, is the mental health impact that not just raising a child like our children has on you, but the constant struggle to do so, the things that are hard that shouldn't be hard and the barriers that are thrown in our way by the institutions that are in name there to support us. I think both of us are activists in part because we actually believe in what our country purports to be and aspires to be. And to have that as our primary obstacle, as opposed to the thing that should be starting us, that's a real weight that we carry. And I hate it. <laughs> I really hate it. Um, so you mentioned the trolls and I see them. I remember early on one person in particular that we tracked down and had a little bit of a comeuppance to, but I wonder if you might talk about that, about what your experience with some of the trolls have been like, because you did, you like personally for Sophia drove actual structural changes at some of these major multi-billion dollar companies. And I wonder if you can talk about what that experience was. Yes, that was wild. I remember the shift from the healthcare fight because there was less of a threat, the failed attempts, the failed votes. And I was inundated with hate constantly. And the moment was when that man posted the image of Sophia as the eugenics poster child and personally reached out to me to want to discuss and continue to harass me. And he harassed me for years, even after Sophia died. And it was in that moment that I decided I was no longer going to take the hate and that I was going to fight back and that social media giants have a responsibility to protect people online as this thing has grown that their policies and the way they protect people needs to change. And at the very least, recognize on their reporting tools, people with disabilities and facial differences and do a better job with however that algorithm works and recognizing the hate. And so I just decided to fight. And I was so angry. I remember crying when I saw that tweet and the fact that he was trying to personally reach out to me. And it's always for me that moment of, I'm going to give up. I can't do this anymore, or I'm going to fight. That was when I found out about Sophia. It was when the healthcare fight, and now this was the next fight that I was deciding to take on. 
And I just shared it online that they found no violation in what he had done. And then another activist said, there's not even a place to report this. And so I shared it and it went viral throughout the world. And I was able to get Twitter's attention. I did news interviews and that was when Fox News also interviewed me. And I honestly thought it was like a local news, like a local Fox News. And it ended up being the big one. And they used my story on the Roe v. Wade anniversary. And then I became a target when they found out I wasn't a right-wing conservative. Then I was getting harassed and told to kill myself and threats and horrible comments about Sophia. But it just snowballed into this wild ride of going viral multiple times and hate and then fighting against it. And when I got Twitter to make that change, I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. The online community and the people that are willing to fight for my daughter and help share the story. I mean, it wasn't just me. It was this amazing group of humans that wanted to fight for equality for my daughter and for others like her. A stranger took a picture of Sophia from an online news piece and used it on Twitter to promote abortion. So basically she was the poster disabled child of who should be aborted and who doesn't deserve health care. Natalie says she spent weeks fighting with Twitter to get Sophia's picture removed and that account taken down. Twitter finally did, but she's still frustrated that when you go to report a Twitter violation, people with disabilities are not specifically listed as a protected category. But a spokeswoman for Twitter told us people with disabilities are in fact one of the protected groups. They're just not specifically listed because there's limited space. This is just about protecting my child and protecting others so that they don't receive hate online. Weaver says she's doing what any mom would do, protecting her child. Sophia, she's amazing. She's meant to be here and she is a wonderful human being. She's made me a better human being. And so I continued my fight when I received hate on Facebook and Instagram. And I actually had the best experience with Instagram. Adam Masiri, the head of Instagram, personally reached out to me and was willing to learn about the hate towards people with facial differences. And I was just so excited to have the opportunity to talk to these people. And I didn't want to change things just for Sophia. I wanted to change things for everyone. And he's made some beautiful changes given us tools to better protect ourselves as well as Facebook. And so that's how I started on that path. And I fought back for a long time against the hate and I would expose people and I wanted to hold them accountable, but that ended up dragging me down and connecting me to them in a way that felt gross. And they would continue to harass me and come back for me. And after my daughter died, people created accounts as Sophia and laughed and celebrated her death. And I realized I just, I can't continue to fight against the hate. I just have to fight for what I want to see in this world. And that is equality and acceptance and love towards people with facial differences. And the best way I can do that is to share my beautiful daughter with the world. And if they would like the opportunity to get to know someone with facial differences, then here it is. And I created the Grow with Sophia series and people have been able to learn about her and see the human being behind the differences. And I hope that makes a difference for others now when they go out and see someone with differences.
I just can't imagine it wouldn't. You know, even as somebody who got to watch Sophia grow up a little bit, it's beautiful for me to see that series. And I hope that people will watch it because it's really, it's really important. Do you think that there's enough legal support for some of these trolls, legal ramifications? And the reason I ask is that recently our friend Fred Guttenberg, he had somebody who was making very similar comments about his daughter, Jamie, who was killed in Parkland in the mass shooting there. And this person was reaching out hundreds of times through Fred's website, through my website, saying horrible things about Jamie and about other, particularly about other women surrounding Fred and Fred himself. But it was always targeted at women. And this person eventually, after months of harassment, we were able to get the FBI involved. And this person was arrested and was just sentenced to a year in prison. And it's one of the first times I've actually heard of this happening. And it took a lot of work from a lot of people to make it happen. And I wonder if you think that we need stronger laws about this type of harassment, in addition to the other types of awareness that hopefully will reduce the need of people to do this. I think we do need more laws in place and a task force committed to cyberbullying. I remember there was a man who continually reached out to me and said some really disgusting things about Sophia. And it was the first time I was able to get the police involved and they sent someone to his home to give him a warning to never reach out to me again. And I was surprised that we were able to do that, but he was using his real identity. And my thing is someone can create 50 accounts to cyber stalk you. And it is very difficult to prove that is the same person. I know that Police can reach out to social media giants to try to get the real identity. But I feel like social media giants could put something in place to stop that type of cyber stalking and harassing because I should know that one man has created 50 accounts to harass me thousands of times in a month. And, you know, I think, although this will not be a very popular suggestion, and I think there are some good reasons why. I would still say that one of the things social media companies need to do is to either require photo ID to start an account or to ban VPNs from accessing their accounts to prevent anonymous logons, because then they can't go back and trace IP addresses. At least even if I can't do it, somebody at the website level needs to be able to track back to that individual person for law enforcement for this. And that doesn't seem to happen right now. But yeah, I agree. I think we just have to be able to do more. And I think we have to hold platforms accountable. When Elon Musk took over Twitter, that reporting category is gone now. In fact, they've changed the reporting category. And I think Twitter is a dying entity anyway. But that regression there, I think, means that we as users need to hold them accountable to allowing this type of behavior to happen through their platforms. But we'll see how that works out, I guess. That was sad for me to see. I started my activism on Twitter and then to fight for that change and to have that change and then for it to be lost, that really sucked. But I do think social media giants, they have the resources and the ability to make it a safer place online. I do like the fact that they have given more controls to the user to better protect themselves, but there is so much more that needs to be done.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I guess I would ask you now, because now you're active. You have the Grow with Sophia series. You're active on Instagram. You're active on TikTok, right? Given what you've received, like what keeps you there? Why do you keep going back to it? And I will say I do the same. I'm, this is not a judgmental question. Just because like, I don't know why the hell I'm doing it. I have no idea why I'm still there, right? And so why are you doing it? Maybe you'll help me understand myself. After Sophia died, I honestly wanted to pack it up and quit. And something inside me just wouldn't let me quit. When I was on the verge of doing it, something stopped me. That is my desire to make this world a better place. I want to be a part of the reason things change in a positive direction. When I found out at 34 weeks pregnant that my child might not survive birth, and if she did, she would be profoundly disabled, I didn't think I was strong enough to handle it. I was filled with overwhelming fear, but I had no choice but to face it. Four weeks later, Sophia was born, and I never knew how powerful a mother's love could be until I held her. That's when I knew I'd be strong for her. She was filled with so much joy, and she taught me unconditional love and radical acceptance. No matter what was thrown our way, we got through it together. I love you. She was an amazing human being, and it was my job to protect her, but the one thing I couldn't do was stop her from leaving us when it was her body's time. So my job now is to keep her memory and impact on this world alive. She was a beautiful soul, and I miss her so much. And I also felt just packing up and quitting would be Sophia dying all over again. When you have built something for years online and had this amazing online community support you and surround you and love your daughter like you never thought other people could, to abandon that would feel like abandoning Sophia and abandoning those beautiful people that have invested their lives in my life and my daughter's life. Those people have seen my daughter for who she is, and it's a beautiful thing. I have received messages of people going through difficult times that still hide away with facial differences because of the cruelty that they face in this world. And I think I have the privilege and ability and time to raise awareness around facial differences. I have the story to share with people about my daughter they have the opportunity to get to know someone with facial differences on a personal level. You can't look to my community or my neighbor and see anyone like Sophia. So I think it provides a beautiful opportunity to get to know someone. And when we get to know someone on a personal level with disabilities, with facial differences, we become more comfortable 
we become more compassionate. And those are the things that keep me going. And I hear about children who wish they could have met her and wanted to be her friend and parents that are teaching their children about Sophia. And I remember there was a teacher in France that reached out and said, I'm teaching my classroom about Sophia. Many classrooms do. And she said, one of the kids stopped me and said, oh, my mom follows her in France. She has reached across the world. And my daughter changed who I am. She provided me with empathy, compassion, a fearlessness that I never had before, and the desire for good and for acceptance and unconditional love. And I think these are things that if we learn and see it can change our world for the better. And I want my daughter to have a part in making this world a better place for people with disabilities and facial differences. That is why I don't quit. That's why I joined TikTok. I actually joined TikTok to monitor my son's little private TikTok account. And then I thought, wait a minute, this is a lot of young people. Maybe I should try to do this. And that's grown more than any of my other accounts. And I just enjoy sharing and connecting with people. And connecting with people like me, which again, I can't do within my community or my neighbor. And it's a beautiful thing when it's used in the right way. And as long as I don't go down that path of taking on the hate and taking what the trolls say to heart and just continuing on to focus on why I'm doing it, then it will remain a beautiful thing and I will continue on. It's really powerful to think about this being a way for Sophia to continue to change the world. It's you as well. You started a nonprofit called Sophia's Voice. Tell us about the work that does and how people can support you. Sophia's Voice started during my activism journey. And I remember many people reaching out to me in need. And I realized that I was able to raise some money. And I was shocked by that again. And I thought, you know what? I will create this organization in honor of my daughter. And I will provide people with anything that they need, medically, equipment, pay for doctor's appointments, medication. I've helped keep the electricity on for someone that has medical equipment and those types of things. And I've helped hundreds of people and families. I've also helped support disabled activists and their work because it is incredibly vital. People don't realize that their work impacts us. At some point, you and someone we love will be touched by disability and the work that they do changes the world for us and makes it better and provides us with that type of assistance. And I continue to do the work with social media giants, but the way that they can help is just support, donate, of course, and share the Grow with Sophia series to help raise awareness. And it's just been a beautiful thing for me. It's been the thing that has kept me going. Helping others keeps me going. And I remember when I wanted to quit, there was someone in need of a motorized scooter. And I thought, if I can just do this one thing, then I'll shut it down. And I helped. And I realized that I was sending out a part of Sophia into the world. People are donating because they love my daughter and believe in the work that I've done. And it's like sending a little bit of Sophia's love out to the world to support people. And where can people go to donate? www.sophias-voice.com. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope are the people that are willing to grow and learn 
and accept people? I don't know. Gosh, that's a hard question. What gives me hope? I just believe the good in people. And I think people can grow and change and evolve in the right direction. And I think Sophia's story gives me hope and the way she impacted me. And I continue to share her story and I want her story to live on even beyond me. And I want her story to continue to make a difference in this world. I will say that the fact that you were able to say, after everything we just talked about, that you can see people changing, that you believe in the good of people, and that gives you hope, man, that gives me hope because sometimes I really have a hard time with that. When you are someone who gets to see pure evil and the darkness in people like you never thought you could, you also get to see the pure beauty and love in people. And I can say with 100% certainty that there is so much more good than bad in this world. And that's what gives me hope. Well, Natalie, you give me hope. Thank you for everything that you do and for being part of the podcast. I appreciate it so much. And one of the questions that I get most often is what should I or my child do if I see someone out and about with disabilities or facial differences? And my quick answer to that is that disabled people and people with facial differences don't exist to educate you. They just want to go out and about and be treated just like everyone else. So what can you do? You can model appropriate behavior for your children. That's the way they learn the best. You can not shush them away and teach them avoidance. Instead, teach them to smile and say hello. You can also educate them when you take them home. There is a large amount of people online who are generous enough to share their stories about their facial differences and disability. There's a level of cruelty that most of us have experienced in life. For some reason, there's a group of loud, weak, pathetic human beings who find their only happiness in trying to cause pain to others. You know, it's bad enough when it's aimed directly at us. But it's absolutely the most evil thing in the world when it's aimed at parents of medically fragile children or parents whose children have passed away or of children with differences. And it's even worse when it's aimed at those children themselves. Social media companies need to do so much better at stopping this kind of behavior. I'm not sure what the answer is. Require an ID before starting an account? Working proactively with law enforcement to stop this kind of hateful harassment? I don't know, stronger laws with real teeth which provide legal consequences and which are enforceable and enforced. It's probably all of the above and a lot more. We need to build better people. But I just know that pouring pain on top of the unimaginable pain families like Natalie's have had to endure is not something that can ever be acceptable in our society. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.